0: As I said last week, chapter 4 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. We could also apply that same moniker to the next chapter, chapter 5, because the vision that John sees encompasses both chapters 4 and chapter 5. Now, that is my not-so-subtle way of saying to you that we won't be rushing through these chapters. And why would we want to? They contain some of the most vital and glorious information in the scriptures. They are wonderful news for us as the Lord's disciples. These chapters transport us to the throne room of God, where where we are able to see through John's vision the activity of heaven. And so we see God the Father and God the Son, being praised throughout all of eternity. And Revelation chapters 4 and 5, they give us a glimpse of what the future holds for all those who are in Christ. And frankly, it's a glorious future. Now, if you remember, John was summoned to heaven by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he describes himself as being in the spirit and he was transported into the throne room of God. He was taken into the throne room of God Almighty. Now what's interesting to me, and I briefly made mention of this last week, is the focus of the vision. Now remind you, the focus of the vision is the throne and the one seated on the throne. Say, so, well, why do you find that to be interesting? Well, as we read through Revelation chapter 4, surely you noticed that there was a lot of things going on in John's vision. You had to notice that John encountered some pretty incredible sights and sounds. I mean, after all, it's not every day that you encounter four living creatures with a strange appearance described by John. Now, admittedly, we... Um, encounter some strange living creatures here on earth, and some of them even walk upright on two legs, amen. But we've yet to encounter anything such as John saw in his vision. Yet despite the four living creatures and despite the 24 thrones and despite the 24 elders, John's focus is on the throne and the one seated on the throne. And you, you know what? John wouldn't have it any other way. You see, all this other activity that's taking place in heaven that John eventually describes, but yet his focus is on the one who is seated on the throne. And if there were no throne, if there was no one seated on the throne, then there would be no need for four living creatures or 24 elders. If there were only a throne, but it was, empty, but it was an empty throne, then there would not have been any need for the hymns of praise, that we hear coming from the lips of the four living creatures and the 24 elders. There would be no display of worship as the 24 elders fall down before the throne and cast their crowns before the throne. So you just don't worship an empty throne. But thankfully, and everyone who's in Christ should take great joy at this reality the throne is not empty, it is occupied. It is occupied by the one who is described as holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. And that's the whole point of the vision, isn't it? The seven churches needed to know, and desperately so, that God was on his throne actively ruling and reigning. The first century Christians needed to be reassured They need to have their confidence strengthened that God was Lord and not Caesar. Caesar, make no mistake about it, he was exerting incredible power. He was persecuting the, the believers in these churches. They were having a very difficult time. But God wanted them to know he's a piker compared to me. I am the one who's ruling And reigning from on high. So, likewise, our focus must mirror the focus of John. We must fix our attention on the throne and the one who is seated on the throne. In spite of all the distractions of our lives, we must do what? We must focus on the throne and the one who is seated on the throne. It is so easy to become distracted in our lives we can watch the news we can read the blogs we can hear all kinds of bad news and if we're not careful we begin to buy into it that this world's going to hell in a handbasket and there's no hope for it there is hope for it because the powers that be in this world they are all operating under the control and the permission of God almighty Those who think that they are exerting considerable influence in this world are only doing so at the behest of the one who is seated on the throne. They do nothing without his permission. He is ruling and reigning from on high. As I said last week, Revelation chapter 4, now I'll include Revelation chapter 5, really gives us a new perspective. And by the way, One of the reasons that we gather together to worship each and every week is so that we can be reminded of this new perspective, of a different perspective, that what we see going on around us and the things that we experience, that's not all that there is, that there is a throne And there's one seated on the throne and he is ruling and reigning. And so we come in here and we sing the songs of worship and we listen to his word and we learn about our God and it changes our perspective. Listen, if you come here Sunday after Sunday and you don't gain a fresh perspective, either I'm failing you or you're not paying attention. So John is transported to heaven and he gets this new perspective. You know, we live in a world that appears as if there's nothing but chaos going on. And it seems that evil is triumphing over good. But scripture reminds us that God is still on the throne. And he rules not only over this planet, but our universe and all the galaxies that exist. Now, I've taken the last few minutes of your life to highlight this, to impress upon you the need to keep your eyes on the throne and the one seated on the throne for this reason. Please pay attention to this. In chapter 4, we see from the pages of Scripture, we see some pretty spectacular things. After all, you don't come across these four strange living creatures every day. And when's the last time you saw 24 thrones and 24 elders seated on these thrones? We, see, we read about these four living creatures, and frankly, they defy human comprehension. Try as we might, we just can't kind of, it's hard to wrap our heads around these living creatures. And we'll look at them more next week. And then we have this group of 24, and we say, who are they? And what are their importance? What do they represent? Here's my caution. Here's my warning. You can get so caught up in trying to figure out all the little details about the four living creatures. I mean, after all, John says these guys have eyes within and without. They got all kind of wings. You know, we can get so bogged down in this trying to trying to read into every little detail, try and find some meaning. Or the 24 elders, who are the 24 elders and what are they doing there? Who do they represent? We we could expend all of our time, all of our energy, trying to figure out the things that God has not revealed to us and miss the main point of the passage. Say, what's the main point of the passage? It's what these creatures and these elders do. Say, what do they do? What, What is their time involved in? Where is their effort? It's involved in worship. That's what John wants us to see. Yes, we can wonder at these four living creatures. And yes, we can wonder who the uh, uh, 24 elders are. But you know what? It pal- the, who they are pales in comparison to what they do. And that's the point. How much ink has been spilt trying to figure out what these four living creatures are? When in reality, we can never know for sure because God hasn't told us for sure. But one thing we know for sure is he is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped. So we need to be careful that we don't miss the main point here. I'm sure you've heard some other people teach in Revelation and you walk away more confused than when you started. I went through Bible college he was a godly man, godly man. I hope I last in ministry as long as he did. He had studied the book of Daniel and Revelation for, I believe, 45 years at that time. And At my age, he's probably, he's probably in heaven by now. But I would sit there week after week and he brought in and he had the, the charts and the diagrams and all this stuff. And I, 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 I didn't get it. We missed the main point. God is to be worshiped. The Bible teaches that God is actively ruling and reigning over the affairs of this world, and that one day evil, wickedness, and Satan will be fully destroyed. Yet we look around and it appears that evil's winning. It appears that wickedness is not on the decline, rather, it's on the incline. It appears that Satan is running around doing whatever he wickedly desires to do. Have you ever felt that way? So how do we know that God is actively ruling and reigning from on high? Well, one way, we believe the scriptures, amen? We believe the scriptures. We read it, we believe it. But there's also other indications in the scriptures that helps us to understand this. Now, a few weeks ago, Jeff came up to me uh, at the front here and said, uh, showed me a book that he had bought. And it was one that I had planned on reading at some point in the future, but uh, you know, never, never waste an opportunity. And I immediately commandeered the book from Jeff. And the title of the book was called the exorcism of Satan. I mean, just, just the, uh, title alone made me want to read it. Now I take it with me when I pick Daniel up from school a couple days a week, but I keep it face down because I don't want other people seeing it and think, oh, that guy's eating voodoo or something, you know. But it really is a good book. And the whole point of the book is to demonstrate from the scriptures that Satan is not in charge, that Satan has lost the power to no longer deceive the nations that he once held. The point of the book is to demonstrate and illustrate from the scriptures that Satan is a defeated foe and he's living on borrowed time. The Bible teaches that Satan awaits his final impending judgment when he will be cast into eternal damnation. Say so, well, how is this invisible spiritual reality made known to God's people? That's a good question You yeah. asked. Here it is. As you read through the Gospels, who do you find Jesus frequently encountering? Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, be surprised if you would, would say the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, he did, and they were one type of uh, evil creatures, amen. But he frequently encountered people possessed with demons and evil spirits, did he not? For instance, Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man living among the tombs. And scripture says, has been repeatedly chained up, but there were no chains strong enough to hold him. And he repeatedly broke those chains. On another occasion, Jesus encountered a son, a father whose son was afflicted with an evil spirit and torments a poor little boy. Ask yourself, what was the response of Jesus every time that he encountered a demon-possessed person, a person afflicted by an evil spirit? Now, let's think this through. You're intelligent people. Let's think this through. Can you find me any account in the Gospels when Jesus encountered a demon-possessed person that Jesus backed down from? Never. Not once. Jesus never cowered in fear. Jesus never wrung his hands. Jesus never wondered what he was going to do. Jesus never backed down from a confrontation with the hounds of hell. Never. In fact, the demons were afraid of him. One example, Matthew chapter Uh, 8. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. Because there's there's a couple things in here I I just want to highlight. Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And when he, referring to Jesus, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, I notice this, two demon-possessed men met him. Jesus is outnumbered. See that? He's outnumbered. Two to one. It's not a fair fight. You're right. It's not a fair fight. Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce. Now, now, mark this, so fierce that no one could pass that way. No one else even had the courage to go by him. Now, do you think Jesus said, well, this is the shortest route. I think I'll go this way. I doubt that. <laughs> Jesus knew they were there, and he knew what he was going to do. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Remember, these are two demon-possessed men, so fierce that nobody else would go near them. And they're saying, what are you coming here for? Are you coming to torment us before the time? Now, herd herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out. Boy, they were positive thinkers. The wrong thinkers, if you cast us out, send us away to the herd of pigs. And he said to them, notice this, notice this, notice this, two letters, two letters, go. Is there any hint of resistance on the part of the demons? None. Go. They went. No, and he said to them, "Go." So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the sea, bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Isn't that an amazing passage? The demons know who Jesus is. They knew that he was God in the flesh. They knew that he was in charge. They knew that he has all authority, and that authority extends to them. They. Listen, they know what their future holds, and they also know who holds their future. One of the old Star Trek series, series, I think it was uh, the one with uh, John Luke Picard. I can't remember the series. What was the name of it? Next the Next Generation. They had the Borg. They had the Borg. Thank you, fellow nerd. They, they had the Borg. <laughs> they had the, the Borg were in there, and, the, and, and, the, and they would say, resistance is futile, resistance is futile. The demons could have said it. Resistance is futile. Let's just go. So, what's the point? Every time you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus casting out demons, think to yourself, this is a demonstration of the current ruling and reigning of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Have you ever wondered why all these accounts are in Scripture? I think they were given to boost the confidence of the disciples and thus by extension. And so we see Jesus approaching these demonic, infested people. He's not afraid. He doesn't back down. He doesn't hesitate. He knows exactly what he's going to do, and he does it. And whatever he says, they do, they go. It is a vivid illustration of the present rule and reign of Christ. Don't you find that to be incredibly good news? Yeah, we pay attention to what goes on in Washington and in the, uh, the U.N. And all. Yeah, we, we pay attention to it, but we know ultimately it, whatever they do does not thwart God's plan. They can blow and bluster all that they want. They can pontificate all that they want. They can issue their statements all that they want. But ultimately, God is in control. And the power, the authority demonstrated by Jesus on earth came from that throne that John saw in his vision. Now, remember that John uses symbolic language to describe what he sees. So when John describes the one seated on the throne as having the appearance of jasper and Carnea, and he's using these precious gems, he's using these precious jewels in an attempt to convey to us the indescribable beauty and worth of God. So John is trying to describe the indescribable. He's trying to fathom the unfathomable. And he's trying to scrutinize the inscrutable. So, John first begins to describe what he sees. He sees the one on the throne, and he sees the throne and the one seated on the throne. Then John begins to describe what he sees around the throne. Now, to the text, look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Let me try and paint just a little bit of a word picture for you. John sees the throne, capital T, capital H, capital E. The throne. And this is purely speculation on my part, but it helps me put things in perspective. I believe when he saw the throne, it was a massive throne. And around that massive throne, it's 24 baby thrones, if you will. They paled in comparison to the throne. So he sees the throne, and then he sees 24 thrones, and the text leads us to believe that they encircle the throne. And on these 24 thrones, he describes them as being occupied by elders. Elders. So the question is, who are they? Who are they? Now, at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to take the easy way out and not doing the hard work of specifically trying to identify the 24 elders, I must tell you there are many interpretations and opinions of who these 24 elders are. And if I wanted to put you uh, all to sleep, which some of you are headed that way as as I speak, Um, I could run through all of the possible interpretations and some detail, and your eyes would glaze over and uh, our time would be wasted, so I'm not going to do that. I will give you the predominant interpretations of who these 24 elders are. There are some who believe that these are angelic representatives of redeemed mankind. There is some biblical justification for holding that view, which I will not go into this morning. But I will say it is a possibility, and it is an interesting possibility. And it would have to do with going back to the Old Testament, where you see that David... Uh, divided up the priests into 24 uh, courses and the singers into 24 courses and some things like that. Possibility. Second possibility is uh, there are those who believe that they are representatives of the raptured church. Now, immediately, I dismiss that idea for reasons that I gave last week. Amen. Others believe that they are Old Testament saints. Others believe that they are the patriarchs of the Old Testament, along with New Testament saints. Now, in order to have any chance of making a reasonable interpretation of who the 24 elders are, uh, we must compare Scripture with Scripture. And by the way, when you're reading the book of Revelation, and you're trying to make uh, sense out of it all, uh, other Scriptures are your friends. You want to compare Scripture with Scripture. So who are the 24 Elders, I'm going to give you what I believe to be true and why I believe it to be true, though I admit I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Now, I'm a Baptist, I'm admitting that it could be wrong. So mark it down. Put it down in your date book. A Baptist admitted he could be wrong. Amen? I personally believe, based upon John's description of their clothing and their crowns, that the 24 elders are representative of the redeemed throughout eternity, throughout time. So that would include Old Testament and New Testament saints. And I wouldn't even argue with those who say, okay, you've got 12 heads of the tribes of Israel, and you've got 12 apostles and 12 plus 12, even according to new math, equals 24. Okay. I, would, I would not argue with that at all. And the reason I believe this to be true is, again, if we go back to John's, to the seven letters that Jesus gave to John for the seven churches, what do we, what do we read? Well, we know from earlier in the book, in the seven letters, that Jesus said to those who persevere, to those who overcome, that they will be given white garments to wear. Now, that's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. Jesus says to the church there, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The 24 elders are described as wearing white garments. Jesus said to the believers in the church at Smyrna, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So John describes them as having on white garments and golden crowns. So Jesus says to those who overcome that they will what? They will be given white clothing to wear and they will be given a crown of life. So based upon that information, it, and I, I give a lot of weight to the immediate context of the text. That's that's really a deciding factor for me. Now, if if the white clothing and the golden crowns had not been mentioned in the seven letters, then I might not be so quick to say, well, you know, these, this is who it is. But based upon the context here, and just based upon what... John has already written and what the the church has already received, it leads me to believe, though I could be wrong, it leads me to believe that the 24 elders are representative of the redeemed throughout redemptive history. Again, it very well could be the 12 patriarchs and it could be the 12 apostles. Again, can I or anyone else be definitive as to the identity of the 24 elders? No. You say, well, why not? Because Jesus did not reveal who they are to us. He does not make it clear. Which leads me to conclude, again, that is not the most important part of this passage. But what is made clear is what is the most important part of the passage, and that is worship. Think of it this way, who they are, is not nearly as as important as what they do. Who they are is not nearly as important as what they do. And by the way, that'll be a good rule of thumb as we journey through the rest of Revelation and we come across even stranger beings than these four living creatures. So what are they doing? Well, look at verses 8 through 11 of Revelation 4. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. So let's notice very carefully how John describes their activity. He says that the four living creatures never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. That's their song. That's their hymn. That's what they do. By the way, there's no better, no truer, no no more majestic hymn than Holy, Holy, Holy. And so when the 24 elders hear this song of praise, they can't help but respond. They join in the worship. So what does John see them do? Well, he sees them fall on their faces. And they fall on their faces before the one seated on the throne and they worship. They acknowledge his worth. Do you realize that the word worship comes from the old word worth They acknowledge the worth of God. Therefore, they worship God. And the crowns that they were given, they gladly gave back to the one seated on the throne. So let me ask you a question. Who is worship for? Who is worship for? Now, hopefully, since you're here this morning and if you're a regular part of the church, you probably have a pretty good idea of what the answer is. But there's three possible answers to the question. Who is worship for? Possibility number one is, and it's one that many churches sadly hold to and practice today, and that is they believe that the worship service, and many times when you say worship, people think of music, right? Although that's part of it, it's not all of it. They believe that the worship service, in particular the music, is for the guest, is for the visitor, is for the seekers as they are so called. So called. Now we are into the, at least a second generation of seeker-sensitive churches. And my argument would be, It's been a total failure. So why do you say that? Do we have a strong evangelical church in America? Not hardly. Not hardly. So many of most churches today operate on the belief that worship is for the unbeliever. Now just think of that. What a contradiction in thinking. You're asking someone... Who doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't believe in God to worship one they don't believe in? You're making them hypocrites. That's why I'm not that's, not that's why I'm not impressed by Alan. Alan Jackson can record all the great hymns of the faith that he wants. He's a hypocrite. You're doing it to make a buck. And, you know, we're so foolish in the church today. Oh, Alan Jackson must be a Christian. Uh, he sang a bunch of hymns. He even put them on a CD. So? Listen, we are glad. We we want visitors to come to our church. We want guests to come to our church. They are more than welcome to come here, but we do not do anything for them while they're here, meaning we don't gear any of the service to an unbeliever or a seeker. You say, that's not user-friendly. Thank you. The church is not to be user-friendly. There's a sense when you come into this place that you ought to be just a little bit on your guard because you're coming into the presence of God Almighty. You know, for years we were vagabonds and we rented this place and rented that place. And finally, three or four years ago, God allowed us to move in here. You know what my favorite feature of the church is? The steeple. You know Why? you got to look up. When you're looking up, you're looking towards God, right? The great cathedrals of Europe, they were all designed to draw attention upward to God. But what have we done here in America? We don't want steeples. We want user-friendly buildings. We want them to be like movie theaters. We want comfortable seating. We want everything to be on the horizontal plane. I tell you, I've, I've been in too many churches where it's so dark you couldn't find your way out if you had a, an owl on your shoulder guiding you. Men love darkness because their teeth were evil. So God bless you if you're here and you're a visitor. God bless you. We want you here. You're welcome here but we're not going to cater to you. Well, you're making a lot of friends today. Second possibility is that worship is for the congregation. In these churches, they would would stand their ground and say, worship is definitely not for the unbeliever. Worship is definitely not for the seekers. It's not geared for... Whoever, whatever guests may be in attendance on that particular day, rather, is for the redeemed membership of the church. Bless God. Therefore, they would swear off any allegiance to, and, and they would shun any participation in secret centers of worship. Have you ever heard someone say this? It's really a comment made in ignorance. I didn't get anything out of worship today. You weren't supposed to. Said, so What do you mean? Wasn't it supposed to give me a warm feeling in my tummy? Make me feel better about myself? No. It really wasn't. Now, worship should not be devoid of emotion. Listen, we can't sing that song He is Worthy without me bawling. What well, Silas came up to me last week and he said, Pastor Craig, why were you sad? So it wasn't sad, buddy. My emotions were stirred when I think he is worthy. So I'm not talking about a bunch of automatrons or robotic beings that show no emotion in worship. But understand, worship isn't even for the redeemed. Say, well, it's not for the unbeliever. It's not for the believer. Who's it for? Well, there's only one possibility left. It's for God. It's for God. And this, sadly, would constitute the smallest segment of churches today. They don't believe that worship is for the unbeliever or the seeker. They don't believe that worship is for the congregation. They believe that worship is for God. It's for God. Therefore they seek to worship in a way that is acceptable to God. Listen Well I won't go down a road. This third group of churches of which we would include ourselves seek to to abide by what is known as the regulative principle, which simply means that our worship is is controlled by and governed by the New Testament. The New Testament. That's why you're never going to see a a, a flag corps up here waving around. The only drama that's going to be here is—is the old boy going to quit on time? Why? None of that stuff is in. None of that stuff is in the New Testament. None of it. None of it. We do not have the right to freestyle and worship. Maybe good on the ski slopes or the skateboard park, but not in church. We do not have, we do not have the right to craft our own worship, our own taste, because many times that appeals strictly to the flesh. We don't have the right to engage in happy clappy worship in which God, if He's mentioned at all, comes off as some effeminate lightweight. Worship is for God. Therefore, worship must be worthy of God. It must be focused on the character of God, the work of God, the holiness of God. It must be focused on the reality of who God is and and how he has revealed himself in his word. See, the most important thing is not who the elders are, it's what they are doing. So I ask you, are you following the example of the elders? Are you worshiping God for who he is and what he has done? Would you you keep this in mind? Worship has very little to do with style. Do you think people in East Africa worship differently than we do? Of course they do. But if it's according to Scripture, it's fine. You know, we had Noah came to church here for uh, the four years he was in college and he was raised in Africa. And he, quite frankly, thought we were kind of boring. Well, compared to what he was raised with, let's admit it, we probably were. Didn't mean we were wrong. Didn't mean he was right. It was just a different style. So let me ask you this. Have you recognized the worth of God? I know one thing, if you are not a believer, that means that you have a shallow understanding of God. Because if you had a more robust understanding of God, you would realize just how worthy he is to be worshipped. True worship, worship that is acceptable to God, can only be given to him by those who are in Christ, by those who have come to Christ. By those who have realized their need of salvation have come to understand by the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit that they are sinners in need of a Savior. So I ask you, have you come to Christ? So what does that phrase mean? It it simply means, has there been spiritual movement in your soul in which you recognize who you are and that in your current condition, You're not acceptable to God. So therefore, you have looked outside of yourself and you've looked to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, which are many, but yet his mercy is far more than you need for your sins. And If you haven't come to Christ, the Bible says, come while you still can. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. You may say, you know, I'd like to think about it some more. Now, that's a valid response. But God doesn't guarantee you the time to think about it some more.